Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Policing, Incarceration and Reform, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Deniz Yonucu, from Newcastle University. Today, we will be discussing Adam Elliott Cooper's brilliant and highly necessary new book, Black Resistance to British Policing, published by Manchester University Press in 2021. Black resistance to British policing is a must-read for all those who are interested in the history of the British Empire, its enduring legacies, and anti-colonial and anti-racist resistance. Adam Elliott Cooper is a lecturer in public and social policy at the Queen Mary University of London. He received his PhD from the School of Geography and the Environment at University of Oxford in 2016. He is also co-author of Empire's Endgame, Racism and the British State, published by Pluto Press in 2021. Dr. Cooper sits on the board of the Monitoring Group, an anti-racist organization challenging state racism and racial violence. Dr. Cooper, thanks so much for joining us today. It's really, really wonderful to have you on the show. Could you please tell us a bit about yourself? Ah, thank you so much. And I'm really excited to be on the show today. Um, so yeah, my name is uh, Dr. Adam Elliott Cooper. Um, I was a youth worker in uh, North London and East London for a number of years before um, the police killing of a man called Mark Duggan in 2011. Um, and at which point I started being involved in a number of community organisations challenging uh, police violence in the city. Um, and it's from there that I began to carry out my doctoral research on the kinds of uh, activism that I'd uh, become involved in and that's that so that work kind of began around 2011 and culminated um, in this book about 10 years later um, so my research generally looks at state racism um, policing uh, colonial violence and its legacies um, but I'm also interested in cultural studies as well and thinking about how cultures of resistance can help us to understand the different ways that people are challenging uh, these forms of uh, inequality and injustice that's great. And uh, I also wanted to ask you about the journey of the book. You briefly mentioned it, but what made you write this book? How this journey started? So um, I work doing youth work in, in East London, running a kind of educational projects of young people in, in the North East London borough of Hackney in 2010, 2011, really kind of got me interested in what it was young people were motivated by and what young people would would be engaged with you know we always wanted to talk to young people about what kind of issues they faced and try to engage them in social and political discussion and consistently policing arose as the issue which they wanted to discuss and talk about and take action upon whether it been them uh, being experiencing harassment or violence or neglect at the hands of the police themselves or one of their friends or one, someone in their family or somebody in their community. And for us, it wasn't simply about policing being the most important issue um, 
at that particular moment or for that particular community, but rather policing being an entry point into wider social, political uh, discussion and action. So asking questions like, okay, so you don't feel like the police protect you. So if the police don't protect you, who are they protecting? What are they protecting, if not you? And through that, we can have conversations about class, about racialization, about all of these different um, forms of hierarchy and power within society. And I think it was really by using policing to have these wider kind of social and political questions being asked that I kind of began to be interested in taking these kinds of uh, youth work educational initiatives and turning it into something um, with more depth, I guess, um, intellectually. Yeah, yeah, I can. I'm an anthropologist myself, and I can see how anthropologically informed your research is, actually. So it is, um, we can even call it as an ethnographic study combined with archival work and historical work. So you are truly, truly an interdisciplinary scholar, and I really, really appreciated how you combine the historical legacies of colonialism, how you look at the historical legacies of colonialism in understanding policing today. And I would love to talk uh, more on that um, in a second. But before that, um, as you mentioned in your uh, book, the works on resistance to police violence or police brutality or police power in general pretty much focused on the United States. So your book is a major contribution to the scholarship that attempts to understand the operations of racism, police brutality outside the United States and outside uh, North America. And of course, the resistance against it. And I really appreciated that how police power goes hand in hand with resistance to against it. And while analyzing um, resistance to black resistance to police power, you put black women activists' work at the center of your analysis, such as Brixton Black Women's Group, United Black Women Action Group. And even though they were black women, were main actors of the organization of black resistance against British policing, their activities were often overlooked, as you mentioned in the book. So can you tell us a bit about the history of black resistance against um, British policing and women's role in organizing this resistance? I think there are two or three reasons why I thought it was important to um, use as case studies campaigns which think about gender um, as well as race and class in their resistance to policing. I think that one of them, as I mentioned in the book, is because gender is such an important way in which uh, police violence and state power is rationalised, particularly in the colonial context. So in these colonial contexts, it isn't just about um, the, the, the colonial states saying these colonised peoples, these enslaved peoples um, are um, violent, are wayward, are criminal, are immoral, um, are unintellectual because of how they're racialised um, or where they sit or simply because where they sit in the class hierarchy. It's also about how they're gendered. Right. So this can be uh, framed if we think about um, the context of uh, slave colonies in the Caribbean, um, uh, enslaved people being um, gendered as being um, sexually promiscuous or sexually violent. And therefore, in order to uh, control and repress and contain this 
promiscuity. We need this system of enslavement. We need this system of um, incarceration. We need this system of, of, of colonial rule in order to repress this. And you see comparable forms of um, gendering on the British mainland connected to these colonial legacies as well. Right. So we um, we see the way that um, uh, black men, for instance, are framed as being hyper violent, hyper masculine, hyper dangerous. And so therefore, we I, I feel like we need a, a feminist analysis to unpack all of these kinds of gendered as well as racialized and classed forms of um, oppression. And so therefore, it made perfect sense to me to to find the ways that these uh, that black women were engaged in these kinds of struggles some of whom might have identified as black feminists some of whom may not have but in bringing in bringing forward and bringing to light the ways that they understood gender as well as race and class as being fundamental ways that policing was rationalized i mean in these colonial and post-colonial context so some of those were in the colonial context i look at uh, activists um, such as Elmer Francois in colonial Trinidad, um, who was um, a, an organiser with domestic workers and with unemployed people who saw the way that women were being exploited, working class black women being exploited in places like Trinidad through domestic work. And so brought a feminist analysis to her organising against um, the colonial regime. But also, as you mentioned as well, um, groups like um, the Stop Sus campaign, challenging the Sus laws, the laws of suspicion in 1970s Britain, in which the police were given powers to stop, search and apprehend people based purely on that suspicion. And again, many of those were the women of young men who were subjected to these kinds of uh, police powers and, and, and police harassment. And it was them, it was they that were also, I think, bringing forward this kind of analysis of um, the, the black family as being framed as this place of chaos, this place of, um, uh, of promiscuity, this place, of, this place where there isn't a, um, a legitimate claim um, to be made. And so I wanted to really unpick the kind of complexities and the messiness of utilising the black family as a site of resistance um, by these black women as well. And so rather than there being this kind of uniform kind of simple black feminist analysis take going from the colonial period to 21st century britain there is a real messiness there is a huge difference and there is a there is a i think a i think a power um to that um uh, plurality of different um approaches um to to the way in which black resistance to british policing is gendered and i wanted to really mm-hmm. uh, bring to light um uh, the diversity of views and approaches um that we've seen um across the years and, and the centuries mm-hmm. definitely and you do an excellent job showing how racism cannot be understood without looking at the operations of gender and how gender and racism are deeply intertwined so i think it's it this book should be also be assigned in gender classes to uh, gender classes uh, as well to show how um, how colonialism is also not only a deeply racist project but also a deeply gendered process so you put gender at the heart of your analysis of racism and i really really found it uh, very important um also, as much as it is about resistance to policing, your book is also about racism. And here, um, here is where um, here is when your interest in cultural studies comes, I guess. So, on the one hand, you brill- 
brilliantly show how racism and policing are deeply intertwined at many different levels, perhaps at levels that that go beyond official forms of policing. But um, but also, you in the book, you go against the conventional claims that racism arrived in Britain as a response to immigration or as a reaction to difference. So you show how deeply structural racism is and how it's not actually originated in relation to immigration. So can, and also to explain this, you point out the imperial amnesia. So I was going to ask you to elaborate a little bit more on imperial amnesia here, and then I'm going to ask you how this imperial amnesia has played a role in framing ongoing forms of racisms and anti-racisms. So there are lots of examples of this, uh, but one really stuck out to me uh, during the Black Lives Matter protests um, of 2020 in which news pundits um, and commentators would argue that really this is an American problem. This is a US problem, which maybe, you know, we can understand this as something that, you know, exists in the United States. There's this history of segregation. There's this history of slavery, um, which means that there are still profound racial inequalities um, in the United States. But here in Britain, we didn't have slavery here in Britain. We didn't have segregation here in Britain. Um, And what we really have um, are... Uh, a legacy of immigrant groups which haven't yet integrated um, and we haven't quite managed the the kind of multicultural question um, yet as effectively as we could. But of course, British racism didn't arise from people from the Caribbean and Africa and Asia migrating to Britain in significant numbers. British racism arose from Britain going to them centuries earlier. And as has been, of course, accounted by many historians of, and, and theorists of colonial racism, racism arises out of the necessity to justify or to rationalise um, colonial exploitation, whether that be enslavement or um, settler colonial genocide or simply stripping the rights and freedoms and sovereignty of colonised nations and peoples. And so... It's through those legacies of colonial racism that Britain has exported across the globe, including, of course, um, to its most successful settler colony, the United States. Exactly, exactly. We must utilise to understand how racism operates on the British mainland today. And I think that because there is this geographical disjuncture, this geographical gap between Britain and its former colonies, it's been able to create this conceptual gap between its own racism today on the British mainland and the histories of British racism which have existed and continue to exist across Africa, Asia and the Caribbean and Australasia. Exactly. You In the book you say that... Um... 
trying to find it. Racism is one of the most important ideological exports of the British Empire. So as you rightly point out, the connection between the United States and Britain and British Empire is often often forget, forgotten. So it's really important to bring out those connections um, to show how, um, how the enslaved people ended up in the United States, the role British Empire played in enslaving millions and millions of people and in North, uh, in North Atlantic in, uh, slave trade. Uh, also, so on the one hand, you point out these historical connections, um, but also your book uh, engages in a very, very brilliant way with the current debates on racism in, in the United States, not only, sorry, not in the United States, in the United Kingdom. So again, uh, the similarity is, is striking. So um, now we are uh, more easily, in a way, addressing racism in the UK and elsewhere, because thanks to the Black Lives Matter movement and thanks to the entire uh, racist movement, both in the United States and in the United Kingdom. But also with all this, it became very popular to talk about racism in very... Um, quote-unquote, in very non-anti-racist way, let's say. So you criticize the use of the concept of white privilege. You criticize the use of the concept of hate crime and attract our attentions to the ideological effects of such notions. And you argue that on page 20, racism is not a system that can be checked. And then you talk about state-sanctioned anti-racism, state-managed anti-racism, and the dangers of state-sanctioned anti-racism. Could you elaborate more uh, on that, please? So I think that one of the ways that the state has responded to anti-racist campaigning in Britain is to try to incorporate some of the assumptions and views of anti-racism, but into a state-managed system. So what do I mean by that? One of the fundamental things about the history of British anti-racism is that it did not begin on the British mainland. It began in Britain's colonies. And people's experience of racism wasn't the everyday microaggressions or humiliations um, or forms of prejudice that they might experience from a co-worker or a neighbour or somebody else um, uh, in their community. It was an experience of racism which was fundamentally linked to being exploited by the um, by the Europeans who might have owned the mines they worked in, the factories they worked at, the um, the fields they toiled in. It was a it was experience of racism fundamentally linked to capitalism and imperialism. And when they resisted those forms of exploitation, it was the state which. Um, entered the arena to um, repress these forms of resistance. And I look at Trinidad as one of the examples of, of, of that. And so this understanding that racism is something which is fundamentally linked to capitalist exploitation, right? it enables capitalism to exploit people differently. It's fundamentally linked to state power because it's a, it's a, it's a way of um, that the states can rationalise the use of violence and coercion and other forms of, of control means that in order for us to resist racism, we have to 
take this as the primary points in which um, uh, uh, resistance is, 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 uh, is targeted. And so what forms of st- state-sanctioned anti-racism do is strip anti-racism of both that history of um, anti-colonial resistance, but also strip it of the politics of its critiques of both the state and of capitalism. And so it reduces anti-racism to a critique of interpersonal interactions, of um, uh, privileges that somebody might experience um, in, 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 on, on an interpersonal level, and, reduce it, and reduces anti-racism to effectively politically correct language and saying the right thing um, in the right circumstance. And so what I really want to do, and I think one of the reasons for me policing is so important, as I mentioned before, isn't simply because, isn't because policing is somehow the most important issue facing anti-racist campaigners today. But instead, what policing does is it forces us to engage with state power. It forces us to understand racism, which is something which is intrinsically linked to the power of the state. And it's that entry points that I feel helps us to better understand policing as some uh, as as a way of understanding racism in these structural forms linked to imperialism, linked to capitalism, linked to state power, rather than reducing it to these interpersonal interactions. Definitely, definitely. And in this way, actually, it's very similar to Nicole Siegel's approach to police work as violence work, reproductive of racial capitalism. So I can see the parallels between your work and her work uh, as well. And also, as you mentioned, one of the perils of state-managed or state-sanctioned um, anti-racism is to reduce anti-racist resistance into an identity politics. So you so powerfully argue that on page 19, race and blackness is not simply an identity. And I think that's that's such a powerful statement to show that, no, this is not related to identity. This is historical. This is structural. There's the there's centuries and centuries long structural racism intertwined with capitalism in operation in here. So you cannot solve these issues with diversity programs or diversity projects or including with one or two more black or brown person into your um, workplace or um, or wherever you are. So I've, I've found, uh, I found your arguments about state-managed anti-racism extremely timely and extremely and extremely important and something that we need to resist against. And, uh, and here, the centuries-long going in, um, anti-racist struggle or pay attention to that so so i really appreciate it that you your your that you bring those uh, voices back into discussion and make the connection so in uh, one of your chapters is titled we didn't come alive in britain um a black um activist well, uh, activists words i guess that uh, mentioning that we started this struggle back in our uh, country colonized by Britain, and we continue struggle in the mainland uh, Britain. And you and, also, and yeah. just, 
And if I could just, sorry, quickly oh, say of course, that. course, please. I think diversity initiatives are often considered to be something quite new. Um, they're often considered to be modern and progressive and, you know, the, the something which is very 21st century. But of course, Britain has been doing diversity initiatives for a very long time. In order for it to be able to control its colonies, um, it needed to do indirect rule. It had to train um, police officers and judges um, and other um, bureaucrats and officials into its systems of power. And of course, after formal colonisation came to an end, in order for countries like Britain to still maintain a a colonial or neo-colonial relationship with um, its former colonies. Again, it had to um, inaugurate uh, natives, right, colonised peoples, formerly colonised peoples, into these positions of power and influence. And so by doing that very a, a kind of comparable process um, in Britain today, bringing people from black communities, from Asian communities into its systems of power and governance, what it can do is create an illusion of progress, create an illusion that change has taken place. And I think no political entity has been better at doing this than Britain's current Conservative Party. By, by far the most ethnically diverse cabinet in British history, they've, they've, they've put Liz Truss has put into place the most powerful, possibly the most powerful black man in Britain's history, right? Her new chancellor, right? Who is a who is a, a an ardent free marketeer, right? Um, they put into place um, people um, into their home office, which are, are more draconian, more violent, um, more anti-immigrants and more pro-border than any home secretary in modern British history, right? So we can see the ways that these um, illusions of progress don't simply... Um, uh, divert people's attention away from more progressive forms and more helpful forms of anti-racist struggle, but actually do active damage to anti-racist movements by creating the impression that actually, how can these possibly be racist um, organisations or institutions when the people doing this racist work um, uh, are black and brown? Definitely, definitely. I love the connection between indirect rule, which made British uh, British colonialism very powerful, actually, and the diverse work ongoing in Britain for for a long time. And I recently moved from this um, from Europe to here. And before that, I was in the United States, so I've been traveling a lot. But in continental Europe, you can't imagine black and brown people in the parliament in such such a high rank position. So when I saw the conservative party in here, I was really surprised. It was it was really shocking. And then, then the connection you make, of course, makes a lot of sense. This is the indirect rule continuing in a different form. So, again, um, I think your book, uh, and very much related to this, make an excellent point in showing how racialization and thus racism changes across time and space, renews itself. And on uh, page 18287, you say that racism never moves in straight lines or fixes itself in clearly defined ways. It's not a clean mathematical science with boundaries and rules. I found this very important, not only in understanding how racism operates and transforms in Britain, but also elsewhere. So it's it's always uh, for 
many of um, not for many of us, for many of us who are working on or who are understanding, trying to understand the operations of racism outside North America, it's really difficult to to prove what's going on the ground as racism because the scholarship mostly looks at this clear-cut definition. And I'm going to cite this in one of my uh, articles, actually, to discuss uh, Turkey, racism in Turkey. And um, would you like to unpack a little bit how racialization changes across time and space and how it is important to pay attention to this, this, this transforming, ever-transforming nature of racism and racialization. Yeah, of course. So um, one of the examples I often use when I speak to my students about this changing, slippery nature of racism is to take the example of Barack Obama. Let's let's imagine that Barack Obama um, isn't the former president of the United States. Uh, Barack Obama is just a normal person um, living in the US. In the United States, Barack Obama would be racialized as African-American. But if he were to move to Brazil, he would not be racialized necessarily as an Afro-Brazilian. He would be one of the 60 or 70 derivations of brown which exist within the Brazilian um, uh, uh, social context. But if he moved to uh, Jamaica, he would probably um, be uh, racialized as a red-skinned man or a light-skinned, brown-skinned man. And if he moved to South Africa, um, he would probably be racialized as coloured, rather than simply black or white or Indian, which are the kind of four racial categories of the apartheid regime. And if he went to Kenya, where his father is from, um, he would probably be racialized as a Muzungu, right? Um, And in many ways have um, similar kinds of um, experiences as somebody with two white parents. So what's important here is that in these different social contexts, Barack Obama, of course, his biology doesn't change, but how race is socially constructed changes. But I think to be more specific, this is something people like Barna Hesse said, it's not simply the social context that is important here. It is the colonial context. Because race isn't simply a social construct. It is a colonial construct. And so therefore, the one drop rule that exists in the United States that makes Barack, that makes Barack Obama black in the US is very different to the rules that exist in South Africa in which um, black people need to be racialized differently to a coloured population who are enslaved um, um, and exploited differently to the African uh, population, which are treated differently to the small uh, brown or coloured elite in places um, like Jamaica. Um, which Stuart Hall has written about, because these different colonial contexts needed to construct racial hierarchy in different ways in order to, I guess, maximise forms of racialized exploitation, but also maintain colonial and racialized control. And so I think it's appreciating the very different ways in which racism arises in different colonial contexts, both across space and across time, that I think is really fundamental to us appreciating how powerful racism is and how enduring its power um, uh, continues to be. Definitely. And I think one of the reasons where, where in places where racism is not much talked about, the the uh, the 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 desire to not to talk about racism is actually the fear of talking about colonialism. 
So in Europe, for instance, it's still taboo to talk about racism. I mean, not in all parts of Europe, but I almost all parts of Europe. I mean, there's this very interesting understanding of racism in, in the context of Germany, for instance. It is as if it was only against the Jewish people and it was only against, it was only about Holocaust. But we don't talk about German colonialism or we don't talk about colonialism in other parts of Europe and, um, and also in the global south too. So colonialism is not only limited to North, uh, the United Kingdom or North America, but it's an ongoing social issue. And I think one of the reasons to avoid discussing about racism is to, is the, powerful, the ruling elites attempts to hide ongoing forms of colonialism. So I think you bring back these discussions of colonialism too in discussion with racism. And I think it's, it's that your, your book does an amazingly powerful job to show these, these forgotten, forgotten connections, uh, I guess. And um, one of the perils uh, of racism is, as you mentioned uh, in your book, and your book is also about crime, production of criminality uh, in relation to policing, and uh, and the myth of black on black crime. And you show how it's deeply rooted in imperial discourses and policies. So there were there's uh, there's been discussions on how. Black people, African people, were selling black people. So they were selling their own men. Uh, was that is the, is the saying goes, which I found extremely problematic and extremely racist. Or black folks right now killing one another. So because they are uncivilized, savage-like people. So would you like to elaborate on on this myths of black on black crime and its historical and contemporary forms? Sure. So I think there are only two or three things that are important about thinking about these mythologies um, that exist um, that connect uh, blackness to criminality or violence. The first, of course, is that historically linking blackness um, to violence and danger was a really fundamental way of rationalising the violence of colonial slavery. Um, and the, the, the forms of other forms of colonial violence which came after it. And so framing black people as being uh, savages and um, uh, violent, and I kind of draw on a number of um, uh, uh, literary um, figures as well as scientists and um, philosophers um, who kind of peddle these mythologies uh, within their own work is a really crucial way um, of, I guess countries in Europe, such as Britain, being able to simultaneously claim that they are the bastions of the Enlightenment and all the freedoms and liberties and rights that come with it, while at the very same time becoming the largest slave trading nations in human history, right, by, by overseeing the genocide of indigenous peoples across the Americas and Australasia, right, by stripping the rights and freedoms of colonised peoples across Africa um, and Asia. But What's also, I think, really important is that what the legacies of this um, this uh, pattern of racial thinking does is it enables the emergence in the 20th century, particularly on the British mainland, of racial categories of crime. 
And I talk about some of these categories of crime in the book, um, particularly in some detail mugging, um, but in more detail so-called knife crime and gang crime. And mugging and knife crime or gang crime are, I think it's useful to think of them not as crimes, but of category, as categories of crime. Right? And what does that mean? That means that there isn't anything in the kind of statute books um, or in legislation um, that mentions mugging or gang crime or knife crime necessarily. These are categories of crime that emerge in particular historical moments. And so in the 1970s, um, the category of the mugger kind of emerges in Britain. Um, it's, it's used in political rhetoric by politicians, by uh, certain sections of the press, as well as in press statements by the police. And it's kind of borrowed from the United States. And what this new category of crime does, it kind of vacuums up lots of existing crimes, theft, robbery, assault and what have you, into this new category of crime, creating the impression that there is a new problem, that there is a different problem. And if there is a purportedly new and different problem, it can be attributed to a new and different people. And it is a, it is young black people to which this new category of crime, and therefore this allegedly new problem, is attributed. And we see a similar process emerging in the early 2000s in relation to knife crime. Crimes involving knives, of course, have existed for hundreds of years, as long as knives have existed, really, right, across, across Britain. But we see this category of crime, knife crime, emerging in the early 2000s, not um, in response to an increase in crimes in which a knife is involved, but rather a kind of um, uh, media... um, political and police-led moral panic in relation to black criminality and black violence. And so it's from this new category of crime, knife crime, um, that we see um, the police begin to record um, crimes differently and therefore create the impression there is a new problem, that there is a different problem. And it's very difficult to find out how much knife crime has, so-called knife crime has increased um, in the last 20 or 30 years in Britain because of the way that um, uh, crimes have been recorded has changed so much. And as this category of knife crime becomes um, uh, popular among politicians and the press, police begin to um, record crime very differently and start to use this new category of crime to record um, uh, forms of crime, uh, things, uh, forms of harm or crime or what have you that involve a knife. So again, um, this can create, as I mentioned, this can create the impression that this is a new problem in Britain, that crimes involving a knife are new and they are different and therefore need to be attributed to a so-called new and different people. And again, it is young black people for whom this uh, this allegedly new problem is attributed. And so therefore this enables a couple of things to happen. The first thing it enables to happen, the first thing it enables is for this to be framed as a crisis that needs to be dealt with by the government. If there is a government which isn't able to deal with the multiple crises that currently exist in Britain, whether it be the global financial crisis, the housing crisis, um, the the health and social care crisis, the looming climate climate and ecological crisis, they are able to gain more legitimacy in the eyes of the public if they are able to deal with the so-called knife crime crisis. So it enables um, the, the government to assert its legitimacy in the eyes of the electorate. 
The second thing, of course, it enables um, it enables is for the police to reaffirm its own power and legitimacy. But whether it be through gaining more uh, legislative powers to stop, to search, to apprehend, to question, to incarcerate, or whether it be through more powers of of weaponry and militarism, right? Whether it be through tasers and stun guns, or whether it be through forms of surveillance operations and what have you. But the th- and the third thing, of course, it does um, is it reproduces existing forms of racism, right? Which which feed into many other spheres of life, or whether it be racism, racial inequalities in relation to employment, um, our border regimes, our housing policies. All of these types of things are reproduced through this fear of black criminality, and is and is connected um, to these other forms of racial hierarchy as well. Definitely. And the gang concept too. So that those who were in the colonies, those who were resisting against the colonial government were labeled as gang. In Northern Ireland, those who were resisting against British power, English power was labeled as gang. And now gang uh, concept is exclusively associated with uh, with black people, black young, uh, young black men. And when we, as you also show in your book, when we look at the statistics, most of the serious youth crime is not conducted by black uh, young men actually but because the concept is so has this is this uh, is so visible in the media is hyper visible in the media uh, if you spread around that such concepts or um, or the discussions on knife crime the mere criminality youth criminality in the uk is associated with with uh, with uh, young black men so you show the power of the media also in your work in framing those issues and contributing the operations of of racism and also, um, you also underline other wrongdoings of uh, conservative British media, and sometimes, unfortunately, not only conservative media, liberal media can contribute such framings as well. You you show the violence and brutality of uh, racist structures and police power by showing that those who lost their lives because of police violence are actually killed twice. One is the material death and the other is the character assassination. And it shows how how deeply violent this police violence is and how it is supported by a wider assemblage, including the media. Yeah, and I think that um, for me, this was important, not simply to um, expel some of the myths um, that are often uh, disseminated um, around people who are killed at the hands of police, but also connect these deaths of individual police uh, uh, by in, by um, these the death connects the deaths of individuals by the police to wider structures of racism, and I think it's really important for us to not atomize or individualize too much specific cases and rather it's important for us to connect what we see happening to an individual to what is happening more widely and i think that example of gangs is a really useful way of doing that right so we see the police killing of mark duggan in the august of 2011 leading to a media campaign which 
frames him as a violent gangster. Um, we see an all-out war on gangs and gang culture being announced by David Cameron, the, the Prime Minister of Britain at the time. And we see a whole swathe of police powers um, uh, uh, being brought into the fore to deal with this so-called gang problem. But Therefore, for me, what it's useful to do is to therefore think about this case study of um, Mark Duggan and his and his death, how his he was framed as being a gangster um, and therefore deserving of this police killing, or just or at least in some ways justifying and rationalising this particular police killing. But for us to be able to think more widely about, okay, so what does that mean for policing? What does that mean for cultures of racism? What does that mean for how the state operates? And I think the gangster, as you mentioned, was it also useful because it is, of course, a very historic word, right? And it is a term that has been used for the so-called um, communist gangsters of Malaya, for the um, uh, the the the, uh, the terror gangs, the so-called terror gangs of the Kenya Land and Freedom Party, the the um, the, the Mau Mau of of Kenya, the the so-called gangs in all of these different colonial contexts was a way of um, rationalising a form of collective punishment imposed upon a colonised population, which was seen to be inherently violent, inherently dangerous. Uh, uh, dangerous and therefore requiring a different form of um, uh, policing and prison control. Definitely. I think I really uh, loved your um, arguments on collective punishment. So it is not like police killings of um, young black men, but it's actually a collective punishment of communities. And this is what colonialism was all about, collective punishment of the of natives. And we see that this is still continuing with uh, such framing. So racism and policing works hand in hand uh, in punishing racialized and formerly colonized or still colonized communities. If I could but, just add one yeah, more of course, thing. please. Yes, uh, I think it's really important as well to think about how the role that class plays here as well, because while these police powers in relation to criminalising so-called gangs or people involved in so mugging or knife crime, all of these categories of crime, they are introduced through these kind of racial um, ideas um, and imagery um, and other forms of racism. When we when we look at, of course, Britain's prison system today, even if, of course, black people are disproportionately incarcerated in this country, um, uh, we all we of course see these powers being used against working class populations of all ethnic backgrounds. And so, while racism is the way of justifying and rationalising the introduction of this expansion of police and prison power. When it's actually used, it's used against um, uh, oppressed or um, um, uh, working class peoples across the board. And I think this connection between race and class, I think, is really important, particularly for somewhere like Britain, in thinking about how these forms of racism and particularly racist policing don't simply affect um, uh, black or Asian and other racialized populations, but in fact are eventually used against working class people of all ethnic backgrounds as well.
Definitely, definitely. That's the boomerang effect of racism. So once you use it in the colonies, then you can also export it to the mainland and work it, use it against your dangerous classes, use it against, use it to discipline or punish the working classes as well. That's why racial capitalism is such an important concept to understand the production, reproduction of capitalism. Those two always go hand in uh, hand. And you also show this solidarity relations between sometimes white working classes and black and brown working classes or formerly or still colonized populations um, in your book too. Uh, and of course, I would argue that one of the main aims of counterinsurgent policing is disrupt those alignments. So we would, I, I would argue that one of the main, uh, main successes of racism is actually to turn white working classes in Europe against themselves by turning them against the racialized populations. So there's that function um, as well. And, um, and you also talk about evolution and you also frame evolution as an ongoing process. So it's not something, something which could start from upside down, but actually you argue that evolution is happening on the ground at the everyday level, at the everyday level, racialized people by engaging in practice of care against police, police violence are making evolution happen. So I want to end this interview. Uh, we discussed a lot about dark, <laughs> dark matters, of course, but, um, I also want to acknowledge the ongoing resistance and ongoing uh, world-making practices. Yeah, and I think this maybe brings us back to one of your earlier questions about the, about the importance of thinking through gender. Because, of course, a lot of the uh, uh, arguments around prison and police abolition emerge from a black feminist tradition, which... Um, in places like the United States, which identifies the fact that, in particular, forms of gender-based violence, domestic violence and what have you, um, are not being effectively dealt with um, by the existing police and prison system. And therefore, trying to imagine what kind of different system of care and safety can be um, developed by communities that can be far more effective um, than the current failings of our police and prison system to deal with uh, gender-based violence and other forms of uh, uh, patriarchal power. And I think it's from these kinds of conversations that we can have wider questions around what does safety look like? What does care look like in a system in which we have seen a consistently expanding police and prison system, but not any of the improvements in public safety that we're told police and prison expansion gives us. So in Britain, uh, since the 1990s, um, the prison population has almost doubled. Um, in fact, in, since the 1990s, the women's prison population has more than doubled, right? We have far more police power than we've ever had, whether it be through weaponry or their power to stop and search and apprehend, or whether it be through their ex massively expansive surveillance systems, whether it be through CCTV or uh, monitoring our digital communications and what have you. And so 
if we can, if there can be no doubts that this huge expansion in police and prison power has not led to an improvement in public safety and a reduction in harm within our society, then it opens the door to us for us to think about, okay, so what are the kinds of changes that can arise within a community to improve safety, right, to, to reduce harm? So on the one hand, I think we can think about what um, people like Andrew Davis refer to as abolitionist reforms. This is saying this is so this is an argument to say we're not what, what we're not going to do is abolish prisons today and abolish the entire policing system tomorrow. But instead, what we're going to do is make small incremental reforms which erode society's reliance on the police and prison system, right? So how can we erode our reliance as a society on the police and prison system? It can be done by improving access to mental health services, to secure housing, to reduce um, uh, exploitation in the workplace, to improve access to domestic violence services and other forms of social care, to improve um, access to youth services and green space. All of these types of um, forms of uh, community-led infrastructure can reduce people's likelihood of coming into contact with the police and prison system and thus reduce our re- society's reliance on police and prisons to solve what are often social problems. And so... It is through this kind of, as I said, this abolitionist reform, right? These community-led forms of alternative systems of uh, care and uh, safety that we can erode and chip away at this assumption, this, I guess, this conceptual assumption that prisons and police are what improves public safety, as well as making practical improvements in the lives of ordinary people. But I think it's also important to say that abolition, of course, is a revolutionary vision, right? It seeks to revolutionise our social relations, not simply our relationship with work and 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 uh, exploitation under capitalism and imperialism, but also our social relations with each other, right? Relations um, in relation to gender, relations in relation to uh, Uh, race, right? And I think it's thinking through all of those different forms of social relations and how they all need to be transformed if we are to have this vision of a future in which prisons and police are obsolete. There's I thought that I feel that these kinds of arguments for abolition are so important, not simply for the everyday and how we interact with each other, but also for a broader vision of thinking through um, a future um, uh, which is which sees a world beyond these forms of hierarchy and exploitation. Definitely. And also, I think racialized communities are making, have, have no other option than making abolition happen in their everyday lives too, because they very well know that police does not provide safety. On the contrary, police appears as a life-threatening force for many racialized populations across the globe. So they have to develop their own own safety mechanisms, and they are developing and experimenting with abolition for for centuries long, uh, in a way. And I think it's really, really important to to learn from those experiences as scholars or activists in our um, in our attempts to to make abolition happen. 
Thanks so much, uh, Adam, for joining us today. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. There's, there's a lot more to discuss, and I really hope to continue the conversation in, in different platforms. No, definitely. And thank you so much for inviting me on. It's been a really great conversation. Um, and uh, yeah, I really hope that these conversations can continue.